There's a word entrepreneurs say a lot. It's as overused as that same joke from friends. Pivot. You know, that word was used so much and it's still used so much. You know what it was? It was a product that gave us a slight amount of belief in surviving. The word pivot only came up months later. At that time, it was revenue. This is Ali Kamalani. He runs General Assembly. Just over a year ago, I would have said that that's a pizza restaurant downtown Toronto. Then, in March of 2020, our first of many lockdowns happened, and the business was suddenly struggling. To stare at a, a room that it's all open, including the pizza theater and the dining room, like seeing that it just gets more empty, really amplified the scary feeling. From the outside, a pivot can seem so calculated like a savvy business move made by daring entrepreneurs. But that's not the truth. Really, they're often a frantic attempt to survive, no more calculated than taking a bus because you missed the train. Sometimes a pivot is nothing more than someone seeing the storm coming. But some people invest in raincoats. This is The Growth Effect. I'm Sarah Stockdale. General Assembly is no longer just a restaurant. After closing their doors in 2020, Ali needed to find a way to pay the bills. He looked at what they had, pizza ingredients, and decided they could just sell those as an at-home pizza kit. Eventually, they started selling frozen pizzas, and then that became a pizza subscription box. I've got one, and they're not your regular frozen pizzas. Now, Ali runs an assembly line. The restaurant became a factory, producing thousands of pizzas a day. And they've just secured $13 million in funding. We're going to move into a master production facility in about a month. And we'll go from, you know, a couple thousand pizzas a day to five, then 10,000 pizzas a day. I look at those numbers and I pinch myself. But the way I told that story still makes it all sound easy. It wasn't. Ali made difficult choices, including turning down a big investment last year. The story of their big pivot after this. Whether you're a large multinational company or your business is still an idea, HSBC is here to help you grow. They can help your reality match your vision. And if that vision crosses borders, they do too. Whether in Canada or in the 53 countries and territories they have commercial presence, HSBC meets you where you are. Learn more at business.hsbc.ca. It was a very scary time. And I think scary is the one word that really encompasses how I felt. Every day seemed to be slower and slower and slower. The one little piece that I was holding on to is that delivery sales happened to go up through the week. For a restaurant that is almost 3,700 square feet, where about 10% of it was dedicated to takeout and about 80% of it was dedicated towards a dining room. If this was going to last more than a month or two, and at that time we had no clue, I didn't know what we were going to do. And until we actually closed the restaurant that Monday where the shutdown order came in, my mind was going in so many places. First, it was, I need to make sure that my team is safe. That was priority number one. And uh, 
we said good night and that we were going to open for takeout and delivery the next day. And we had sent out an email to, to our team asking who would be safe to come in. And they had to check with their girlfriends and boyfriends and wives and husbands and kids. Luckily we had about six of us that uh, came back on the Tuesday and I said, Hey, we're going to try to open up for takeout and delivery. I have no clue what's going to happen, but maybe if we can get through the next few days, we'll be able to start actually rationalizing what sales look like and what, like, how long we can last like this. In my mind, I knew, and I never really told anybody at that time, I don't think we could have lasted for more than three months. I guess we're all in a bit of like a time vortex right now. Like three months either feels like a year or it feels like, you know, 48 hours. It doesn't actually feel like three months. In that three months, what happened? So back to that Tuesday, we opened at noon. By 12.15, I think we had 10 orders and I was wow. excited and I was putting pizzas in boxes and I was not, I don't know if I've ever been happier going up to people who were picking up and being like, thank you. And we started to feel a little bit of happiness that day, even if it was just for a moment. And in the afternoon that day is when we were staring at all the pizza, chef and I were staring at the pizzas being made and we thought, Hey, I think we have everything for a pizza kit right in front of us. Hmm. Do you think we can make a pizza kit? And Chef was like, of course we can make a pizza kit. And, you know, by the end of the day, we pretty much decided that we had everything for a pizza kit. And uh, we kind of decided the only way we can actually tell people about what we're doing right now is probably via social media. It's free. So we took some photos and then Chef started making a video and it was seemed so not authentic. It seemed so not awesome because it was like he was making this video of making a pizza in a restaurant with our kit. I was like, I don't think anyone's going to relate to that mm-hmm. uh, because nobody's in a restaurant. Yeah. I don't think they're going to imagine themselves wanting this because it doesn't look real. So chef said, I'll take the pizza kit home. I think his wife filmed the video and his son was making the pizza with him. And he had some great music on and he was just going through the motions like any, you know, dad and child would at home. And when we posted that video, the response was overwhelming. And by the next day, we were they were flying out the door and we ended up selling hundreds of them that week. How long would you say that it took from that the restaurant shuts down, you start seeing the delivery orders pick up to starting to sell those pizza kits? Like how long did that take you? We started selling the kits two days later. That's a fast pivot. And so that pizza aha moment, I want to hear about that. When was the moment that you're like, we're going to do frozen pizzas? Where were you? What was happening? It was the first Friday that we were in service during the pandemic. We had run out of something. So I had gone to the grocery store and, uh, I got to say, I was a big frozen pizza buyer. I mean, I'm a huge frozen pizza buyer, like for a long time, especially when my daughter was born. There was probably never a point in time where I had less than two in the freezer. And when we ran out, I was like the first thing I'd put on my grocery list. Just because I've been in the pizza business for a few years doesn't mean I didn't buy frozen pizza. So (laughs) I went and I bought the ones that I always love to buy and they weren't there. And I was like, there's not even one on the shelf. And I was like, just imagine we had something to sell there. Like, imagine we could do this because if we did this, 
I'd be providing what I thought was a real solution to a problem that I was having, which was I couldn't get frozen pizza and I really wanted some frozen (laughs) pizza. And then I started thinking about the pizza kit that we launched just a day ago or a day before. And I thought, I think we probably have everything in the restaurant. I think we could do it. And I talked to chef about it that night and he's like, why wouldn't we? Why don't we try? We spent a few days figuring out what we needed. We landed on, we were going to have to spend around five or $6,000 on a few things. And I said, you know what? If we need to do that, let's do it. Because if we don't try here, at least try to do something, we're going to regret this moment. And we obsessed about I, I stood in line, oh, 10 grocery stores over the next three days and I went right to the frozen section and I looked at what, what they had and how much it cost. And I was taking photos of ingredients and cook times and bake times and figuring it out. There weren't that many because there weren't that many on the shelves, but we kind of came back and, and I was like, you know, there's a lot of these pizzas and a lot of pizzas I've been buying. I think we could try harder to make a one that's just, a GA style, one that's for our customers, one that just might be, you know, a little better. I love this because you are moving so quickly through different phases of innovating and figuring out what's next for the business in the pandemic. So you're a couple days from kind of restaurant to pizza kit. How long from pizza kit to selling your first frozen pizza? Pizza kit, I believe, was around the 19th or 20th of March. And the first sold frozen pizza was April 17th. Wow. We spent two weeks in April making hundreds and hundreds of pizzas. And the sauce wasn't right. And the cook wasn't right. And there wasn't enough cheese. And then we started handing them out to all of our friends and colleagues and chefs and sommeliers and just industry friends, suppliers, people who we knew ate pizza and people who we knew that we trusted that would give us real feedback. So it took us almost, you know, over 500 pizzas later and and a lot of feedback from a lot of really awesome people who were there to support us and help us. But on April 17th, we started selling them at our restaurant, four for 40 at the shop. And uh, I'll never forget when the first person actually bought four. I was like, oh my God, I hope they like them. And now you've raised 13 million. So very big shift from kind of restaurateur to like founder raising venture capital. How did you make the decision to raise and go even bigger with this idea? So it was July of last year and we were three months into building our e-commerce platform. Had grossly underestimated how much work and capital and talent and just sheer hours that was going to (laughs) take. I had convinced a few people very close to me to work really hard on this, who all basically agreed to get paid in the fall. We were getting close and I started, I had this feeling in July where by that time we had almost 20 grocery stores. You know, we were making almost 500 pizzas a day by then. The business was stable and I had been talking to some other people about financing because I knew in May that in order to do this justice, I would need to bring in some capital to scale this thing and and try to make it better in all facets, equipment, talent, technologies. And I got an offer 
from uh, a private equity company. And I stared at that offer for two weeks. And I thought to myself, that is a lot of equity for just a very little bit. Oh, it wasn't a little bit. It was a substantial amount of money. But I thought that there was a real disconnection in terms of what we were giving and what we were getting. And I had to look at it really hard because I was like, but it is enough to launch this business and launch this subscription business and get a few pieces of equipment and tools we needed and hire a few people that we really needed and buy delivery vans and all of those types of things, which we needed. And I was just like, if I say no, can we launch this subscription business and can we continue to grow this little grocery business that we're trying to build? And can we make it till November? Because that would have given us six weeks. Uh, well, at that time, I thought we were launching the subscription business and, you know, end of August, beginning of September. That didn't happen either. But I thought, uh, I thought that if we had enough capital to get going and get this thing going by October, and if we had even a few hundred subscribers by then, the valuation of the business would have changed dramatically. Because instead of a what if, which, is, which was the pushback I was getting, and if I had a real data that showed real sales and that real people were actually subscribing, then I would have had a little bit more leverage and probably would have been able to get at least this, maybe the same amount of capital, but kept a little bit more of that equity for the business. We made that decision. I said, let's bootstrap, 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 and be really smart about every dollar we're spending right now because every dollar matters because we need to get to the finish line. We can do this. Let's do it. I've probably never publicly said this to anybody, but like I had my own paychecks and my own stuff just piling up for like Mm. months on the table because I was like, no, I can't do this because this business needs every dollar right now. So that was the moment we decided, said with a very heavy heart, no, thank you. But maybe we can call you back in October (laughs) if you'd be okay with that. Finance has a crucial role to play in tackling climate change, and HSBC wants to help you and your business transition to a low-carbon world. They are committed to supporting responsible economic growth and enabling the low-carbon transition. In Canada, HSBC can help you navigate the world of sustainable finance. They deliver a global banking experience with sustainable solutions and insights to support your business. Learn more at business.hsbc.ca. I want to take some time and talk a little bit about you because I'm very curious about the, you know, restaurant to venture-funded e-commerce business. But I'm also really interested to how did you get to General Assembly? Like what was the process getting into the restaurant business for you? The restaurant business was something that it's in my blood. On my mom's side of the family, my mother had a small catering company in Breslau, Ontario, uh, when I was just little. My grandmother, when she immigrated from uh, Uganda back in the 70s, she started a restaurant. And then my uncles and my mother worked in that restaurant. And I would work in these restaurants with uh, my uncles and make toast and learn how to make eggs and you know clear tables and do dishes and peel potatoes and diner stuff, you know, like the thing is, is I loved it. I loved all of it. 
when I, I was 14 years old, I was working for my mom's bagel franchise. I started with her when I was 12. And when I was 14, I asked my mother for a raise. And she said, no. So I quit. You quit to your mom? I quit my mom's <laughs> business. At the time I lived in North Vancouver, I took the bus and then the sea bus and then the sky train to a, a, a Earl's on Robson Street. I was 14. The first day I ever shaved in my life was that morning. And uh, I applied for the job as dishwasher. They hired me that day. Worked at Earl's for, call it four years. Uh, ended up moving through the, you know, Fryer, saute, grill, forno, like the typical uh, line cook in a large, almost like chain restaurant. You know, I, there was a very good portion of my life when I was 17 years old where I thought, you know what, I want to be a Red Seal chef and I want to work here for the rest of my life. Lo and behold, uh, my mother moved to Guelph, Ontario. She bought a restaurant. <laughs> I was still in high school, so I, I moved to Ontario, finished high school. I worked in that restaurant, saved up enough money to spend a summer backpacking in Europe. Ended up traveling again, working again for eight months, and then traveling uh, through Southeast Asia. And it was on that trip in Southeast Asia where I actually applied to university. And it was in my last year of school. I had an uncle who owned a Harvey's franchise. I thought, you know, I think I know enough about the restaurant business to have a hand at a little burger franchise. I said, can you help me and make an introduction for me? By that time, I was 25. I was about to get a Harvey's franchise. I had convinced my mom to lend me $100,000. Wow. I had nothing but debt. The recession happened and they called my uncle and said, hey, that Harvey's franchise we offered to your nephew, you think he wants to switch LA franchise? There's one in Guelph. It's been there since the 70s. It has 80 employees. It's unionized. I needed $250,000 to buy that uh, franchise. I went to my mom and I said, Mom, they think I can do it. She's like, I will remortgage my house and lend you the money. So my mom and I became 50-50 business partners in a Swiss chalet uh, when I was 26. From a kid growing up eating Swiss chalet at least twice a month, I was so excited. You're 26. There are 80 people already working at the Swiss Chalet, and they're unionized. You're just out of college. How do you get 80 people who are unionized and who have maybe been here for, you know, 20, 20 years? How do you get them to listen to you? It's a great question because I had people the first month I was there celebrate their 20th anniversary at working at that restaurant. And I thought to myself, respect is earned. I'd laid pretty low for my first month, just working with the team, observing. I knew in a month that the changes I wanted to make were going to be changes that made the food better. It made the food go out to customers faster. And I thought I had a couple ideas that would actually turn the revenues up and focus on culture and try to make the organization within the four walls happier, better place to work. By the third month, we had done really well. We had, you know, guest experience scores were going up, sales were going up, people were happier. And I had a town hall or like a, a meeting and I said, join me on this journey because I love this business and I love working with each of you, but it's, I'm obsessed about all of these things and I want to make them better for us all. Uh, and that was the moment that that 
restaurant and that, you know, those 80 people got behind me. I can feel the passion for this business talking to you. Like I can see that, you know, at every stage of your life, being in this business of service and making people happy and bringing delight to them through food and wine. (laughs) What does it feel like to change that and come out of, you know, a couple of decades of this work and really step into a very different CEO role? Scary. (laughs) I was scared again. (laughs) I've been pretty scared a few times in my life as it relates to my career. And I knew the job was in front of me, but sometimes I thought, am I the right person for this? Because, you know, Series A, public markets, huge staff increases, facilities and finance and manufacturing and HR. There was so much that I was going to have to be responsible for. And there were some days where I would stay up pretty late and get up pretty early reading about other founders and and how they did it and what was important to them. And I thought, nobody else sees this business and the potential like I see it. It reminded me of being back at Swishale when I was 26. What can I do over the next three to four months as we get this funding in that is meaningful change for this organization? I'm still kind of scared, to be honest with you, because I think we're growing at a pace that is pretty quickly. But I'm feeling more confident in the belief that our team and our investors have in me. And I'm feeling a little bit more confident in myself. And now the scared is going way lower and the excitement level is getting way higher. And when that starts to happen, I think really, really positive changes uh, come. And if there's somebody listening right now, maybe they started a restaurant or they, they have a dream of getting into this space and they're seeing what's happening in 2020 and 2021 and maybe feeling a little bit of that fear that you had at the beginning, what would you say to them? I would say being scared and having fear, if you can turn that into pushing yourself to try to realize the vision you have, because when you're scared and when you have fear, it probably means that whatever's burning inside you is real. And if you really think you have a solution to a real problem out there that you and everybody else, you know, if you feel it, I bet you there's thousands and thousands of other people that feel it too. And if you need help, there's help out there. There's resources out there. Try your hardest to get that MVP to the finish line and get it out into the world because that chance and that moment doesn't come around that often. That was Ali Kamalani. CEO and founder of General Assembly Pizza. Ali went from having a dine-in restaurant to selling pizza kits in a matter of days, and from pizza kits to frozen pizzas in a month. He could have mourned his empty business, the pizza place he had dreamed of for years and had finally made real. And honestly, no one could have blamed him for that. It was a business he built with a huge amount of love. But Ali saw that this path no longer made sense. He had to let go to create space for something new. It's easy to say, not easy to do, but it does teach us something fundamental. You have to let things go when they stop serving you. Maybe I can put that another way. You have to let things go when you can no longer be of service. We so often forget that businesses serve our dreams, but in order for them to work, we have to be solving problems for real people. 
That empty freezer in the grocery store represented a new problem. It was a way that Ali could use his skills to be of service to people who need him. A lot of people think that entrepreneurship is asking, how can I make myself wealthy and successful? But it's not. It's about asking, how can I use the gifts I was given and the resources I have to be of service? It's about finding empty freezers. If this season of The Growth Effect taught you anything, I hope that it's no matter where you are starting, no matter what amount of societal privilege you do or don't have, or what resources you have access to, there is a problem that needs you to solve it. A problem that will only be solved by your unique gifts, skills, and resources. And if you see that problem and know you can make a difference, but you're waiting for an invitation, it's not going to come. You need to create that opportunity for yourself. Like Bobby did with Virtual Gurus, or what Vivian did with Kinky Curly Yaki. You have to look at what you have and say, this is enough. Because somewhere, there is an empty freezer that only you can fill. And just like that, we're wrapping our second season of The Growth Effect. We've had such an inspiring lineup of guests. I've learned so much from them, and I hope you have too. If you are waiting for the end of the season to give us those five stars on Apple Podcasts, now is your chance. Our team has made 12 episodes without ever being in the same room while navigating a global pandemic. Reading your kind words about how much you've enjoyed the show means a lot to us. So thank you again for taking 30 minutes of your week to join us, and we hope to see you again soon. The Growth Effect is produced by the Globe Content Studio in partnership with HSBC Bank Canada. The producers are Jay Coburn and Katie Jensen of Vocal Fry Studios. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. I'm Sarah Stockdale. Thank you for listening. <laughs>